Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. It was the steps on the staircase. It was uh, start with faith, add to that virtue, add to virtue knowledge, to knowledge at self-control, to self-control at perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness at brotherly kindness, and to that at love. And that as we try and climb these stairs, uh, we talked about how the tools that we have are the Holy Spirit and the Word. We have the Holy Spirit through prayer as that voice within us, and we have the Word to read. Uh, a little bit of background for this part of the letter. Um, this is Peter's last letter to the faithful. Uh, he knows that he is facing martyrdom in Rome, and um, his concerns, like the end of Paul's letters in 2 Timothy and in Jude, uh, they tend to focus on um, false doctrines within the church. Um, at this point, the church was less than 50 years old, which is hard to contemplate when we're in 2020, but... There was a time when the church was young and new. Uh, it was still getting its feet, and in addition to the external crisis that you know, the Roman emperors were putting on them and the officials were pressuring them with, they also had heresy and crises from within. Uh, the church has always seen crisis from outside as a positive thing. Um, this is where we get all the martyrs giving their testimony um, as the emperor sentenced them to death. Uh, and as a result of them keeping their faith, the church grew exponentially despite the hardships and by leaps and bounds. Um, so this, this kind of uh, growth was kind of like taking coal and pressing it into a diamond. That's kind of the external pressures. Um, it's an active practicing of one's faith even when times are tough. Um, the pressures from within the church, though, were always viewed very differently. That seemed more like a worm eating the apple and undermining it from within. Um, there were, at this time, there were conflicts of doctrine, of ritual, there were conflicts about prophecy. Uh, one group at this point was saying that Jesus wasn't God. Another group said that he was God, but he wasn't fully human. And the apostles would take the time to clarify the message and the word that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and then they would take the time, they would start uh, denouncing legalist approaches to faith, like still practicing dietary restrictions, or having to have circumcision is necessary to be saved, or keeping Jewish and Gentile uh, Christian believers separate. Um, and as soon as they would do this and say, no, we, we're not following all those strict laws, they'd have somebody else pop up and say, like the Gnostics, that there were no rules, and you know the body's just flesh, and since sin is, is perishable, we, you know, anything goes. And they were essentially falling into the trap of being exactly like all the worldly pagan cults at the time. So Peter's instructions last week were instructions for uh, are a final last effort to help keep the church on course and stay true to Christ's message and, and stay true to his purpose. Um, he knew that he was on the way out by this point, and he was trying to make sure that the, the church was built on rock and not on sand. <laughs> Which is also fun as a play on words because that's Peter, what Peter means. So... 
Um, so Peter tells us, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Meaning here that you know the truth, which is Christ's message. Thank you. Technical difficulties. Savior face to face again. So passing from this life to the next 
holds no fear for him because there's nothing to worry about. In verse 15 he says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter is leaving us two things here. He's leaving his letters as tangible words for reference and his example. If we go back to the verbiage of keeping things stirred up, think of the spiritual life as a fire. If the wood is kept clean and it's constantly stirred, it'll eventually, the logs will become coals, those will become embers, and the embers at the end will leave only clean, spotless, white ash. And that's really the goal for a spiritual life here on earth, to stay on fire and active until the end, and to leave an unquestionable example to anyone who looks at your life that it was worth emulating. Peter next talks about um, his personal witness to what he saw for Christ. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we hear his voice uh, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, he's talking about the uh, transfiguration. Um, you can read it in Matthew 17.5. There is another version in Mark 9.7 and in Luke 9.35. Peter here is emphasizing that he's not retelling old stories or myths. He was there when Christ showed his divine form on the mountain. He saw a cloud come down and touch it. He heard God's voice shout in a cloud like he did when Moses was talking to him on Sinai, like we've been reading about in Exodus. He heard Christ's own voice as he gave his parables. He watched Christ heal the sick. He is giving a letter as a testimony to these acts. And he tells us in the next verse why that's so important. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is talking about not just what Christ, that what Christ accomplished was miraculous, but it was the fulfillment of the scriptures. There are about, depending how you cut it, about 350 prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled all of them. And he's pointing us to the tool that we have to fact check it. We have God's word to go double check. He is specifically talking about the prophetic parts here, which, and I did not do this research, 26.8% of the entire book is prophecy. So what Peter is emphasizing here is that he didn't place his faith in Jesus either spiritually blindly or physically blindly. He saw the fulfillment of all those Jewish prophets, and he saw the laws and the word unite with that. He watched Jesus live the only perfect life ever on this planet. And also, he's can testify that Jesus' own prophecies about the future were coming true. He received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And Peter does one thing here 
that I think is also worth re-emphasizing. He tells us to heed the word as a light in the dark place until that light dawns within us. That means until we can feel that light from within us. Ignorance is a shadowy place to live, and we should seek out the light. Don't wait to have it brought to us. Seek it out. Don't just believe Peter because he says so. Believe him because you can go look for yourself. Do the legwork. Read. Dissect. Question. Delve. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue add knowledge. The answers are there, and they will illuminate your mind, and your heart, and your soul. You can see in Matthew 7, 7, where I think it said it best, Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. The admonition is keep on. Don't ever stop. Don't rest on your laurels. And we get exhorted to be diligent and thoughtful in our searches. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Interpreting prophecy is always a little bit like treading in a minefield. Sometimes it's hard to make sure that you're still on safe paths, and if you get it wrong, you can potentially do a lot of damage to yourself, or worse, yourself and others. So we're giving a good tip here. No prophecy should be interpreted by itself. It should be compared with other biblical references on that subject. And unless all the sources agree, you don't have the right answer. If there are 350 criteria that Jesus met for being the Messiah, but he suddenly only met 349 of them, he wouldn't have been declared the Messiah. And we all know examples of people henpecking verses out of the Bible to try and prove a point. It's easy to try and boil things down to a line or a phrase, especially in today's world of memes and tweets. But the whole point of having the complete word here is to look at the big picture. Look at a verse, not just by itself, but look at it in the context of being what's said around it. When some of my uh, friends and I were talking before I was saved, a lot of us talked about all those times when you would hear a Christian talking about God's vengeance being used and how it's just absolutely repulsive to try and, and listen to. You want to go the other way, which is not what we're trying to do when we're trying to reach out and save other people. If you hear something like that and you're quoting the Old Testament about evildoers facing God's wrath, but if you look at something like in chapters in Jonah, God's in fact giving a warning so that he can withhold vengeance and he can exercise his mercy. You have to look at the context. In chapter 2 we start to look at some of the destructive doctrines. Um, some of these are very specific references to things that were going on in Peter's day, um, but you can still find modern parallels. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. There's always going to be people trying to change the truth for their own ends. The prophets of old battled it, and we have to guard against false teachers today. The biggest takeaway here, I think, for something to look out for and be on guard for, is that they belittle Christ's place in making salvation possible. And they take away his supremacy and his deity. Some people may say, oh, well, he was a good teacher or a great prophet, but they somehow make him less. They make him a man and not the Lord of Lords. If Christ is less, then it isn't Christian teaching, no matter how nice the packaging is. As my grandfather said in Tennessee so sagely all those years ago, you can polish a turd until it shines like gold, but once you touch it, it's still going to crumble like a piece of crap. <laughs> Incidentally, I would like to point out, he didn't use the word crap, and it was the only time in his 89-year life I ever heard my born-again Baptist grandfather swear. That was how important that example was. And the reason that Christ's supremacy is so key to our faith is this. If Christ isn't God, his sacrifice isn't divine mercy. And if that's the case, then we can ignore him much more easily, and especially we can ignore him if we get to the hard parts of our lives and our ego wants to take control. We're called to follow a narrow path to salvation, not the easy one. If a teaching gives you more latitude to let you do what you want, it's probably steered you onto the, the broad, wide road, which isn't the one Christ wants you walking. Verse 2, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Sadly, there are no false teachers if they don't have students sitting in their classrooms. And other people making bad choices spiritually does affect us, even if we're still walking the right path. Because the world outside will take anyone who says that they're Christians at face value. And that means that even true believers get tarred with a bad brush when so-called Christians act wrongly in public. That's why we have to challenge bad teaching. Because we have the tools and the knowledge to do it. And it is for us, while we're here on this earth, to tend the vine and to keep it from withering. Verse 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Greed is the usual hook to lead believers astray. The devil's playbook, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those are all variants of greed. So if a new teaching lets you be selfish, if it lets you exercise your greed, it's not the real thing. And more importantly, that latitude is probably there because it will distract you and it will allow you to be exploited without you realizing it. A good leader wants to show you the right path and guard and protect God's flock. A false teacher is trying to enslave you, and the best of those teachers that can manipulate best will get you to turn the key on the prison door all by yourself. Now we get to talk about what happens to those people who do bad things. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle. 
and their destruction does not slumber. We get some great historical examples here of how God meets out justice. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those afterwards who would live ungodly lives, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust in order under punishment for the day of judgment. It's important to note here, God's justice never condemns the innocent. The only people who get punished are people who chose to ignore God's scriptures. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, and they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might than man, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Blasphemers and false teachers are always going to try and undermine the church. They want what they want, and they don't care who they're condemning if it furthers their own ends. They can seek to replace God with themselves. So in short, if they're a self-aggrandizing hypocrite, that isn't a right message to follow. Get a little bit more of it. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their corruption. And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, they're going to abuse your good nature to help build themselves up. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. So, not only are they uncontrollable in their own passions, but their corruption will eventually ruin others. If you look at, like, an example like adultery, it takes two to tango there. It's not just one person being lustful. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Which, of course, we all know that story, so I don't need to go over it, right? Yeah, sure. It's a great one. Uh, for those of you who want to reference the complete version, it is in Numbers chapter 22. Um, I'm just going to summarize it because it's a fully fleshed out story on its own. Uh, Balaam was a seer or prophet back in the days when Israel hadn't come uh, into its own land yet. They were still wandering. He had a reputation as being the source of of prophecy and insight in his day. But his problem was, he was for sale to the highest bidder, which is why he was called uh, to curse the Israelites by King Balak. 
While he was on his way there, though, Peter reminds us in uh, verse 16, he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. So, as he's going down the road to go meet with the king and get a very fat purse, uh, his donkey suddenly refuses to move, and he starts hitting the stick. And then at this point, the donkey turns to him, and in a human voice says, Am I not your donkey? And Balaam goes, Yeah. And he goes, Have I ever not gone when you've told me to go? And Balaam goes, No, you've always gone. And the donkey looks back up the road, and then the scales fall from Balaam's eyes, and he can see, Oh, there's an angel in the road trying to block his way and tell him, Gee, what you're doing is wrong. This is also, it should be noted, I find interesting, this is the only time an animal is ever documented as talking in the Bible. So, Balaam goes prostrate before the angel goes, oh yeah, 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 I get it. But the story still continues, and he goes to uh, King Balak, and still conducts the sacrifices and builds altars, and tries three times to curse Israel. But even those who wish to rebel have to submit to God's authority, which is why all three times when he went to curse Israel, he ended up giving them a blessing, and the blessing ended up coming true. Because even if you want to deny God's power, you're still subject to it. Peter sums up these people. They are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak, great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. In other words, their sin isn't being worldly like everyone else out there who can still be saved. Their sin is taking people off the right path. It's choosing willful disobedience, and it's not ignorance. While they promise liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. We're all slaves to something. Are we slaves to the finite, perishable world that rots? Or are we slaves to Christ? If we're slaves to Christ, we're bound to God. We're bound to love eternal. Peter goes on and sums up again the reason why it's important to stay on the path once you've chosen it. For if after they escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Again, it's being guilty of willful disobedience. This is why it's a worse offense. This is the difference between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter might have somebody killed, but it was an accident. Effectively, even the centurion who killed Christ with his spear acted in ignorance. And that's why Jesus forgave them and said, while he was on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's the mercy of real love. The antithesis of that, of course, is Judas himself, who had the real thing, and he spurned it. And Christ was not forgiven. He said, woe to that man who through, through whom the Son of Man is betrayed, 
it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Which is just what Peter echoed here. Peter sums it up in 22. He says, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, which every dog owner can attest to, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Those who are led back to sin here are effectively regarded as animals because they're not using the reason that God gave them. We all have brains, and we all have the word to read and to study. Ignorance is not an excuse. But that isn't to say that we should give up on these people. We do have to be consciously aware of not succumbing to their ways, but we also have to remember that God loves a sinner who comes to repentance. And that doesn't happen unless the faithful in the church keep on mission. There are a lot of stories that you see about members of cults coming out. They often bring other people with them when they leave. So God can even use their sin and their weakness and end up helping to save more souls. And we should be ready to try and help shepherd those souls along. We as a church have to condemn sin when we see it. But we still have to try and rescue the sinner. Failure to do that is to forget love and that we were also condemned, which is what Peter admonished us to avoid last week. Chapter 3 talks about God's timeline. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Haters going to hate and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which that word then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the godly perdition of the, and the perdition of ungodly men. But you, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years a day. Our perspective is tiny. People forget how little our lives really come to, and how small a slice of time a human life is. My friend Ava uh, gave an amazing lesson uh, to the street mission in Soyapongo one night before we served the food, and she took a piece of string, and her string was on a gigantic ball, like the size of a basketball, and she tied one little knot in it, and she said, there's your life. And she then unrolled that ball all the way down the street, which we can pretend that I do because of the magic of the screen ending right about here. So there, I've thrown the ball out onto the street and it's rolling down. Most of you online probably can't even tell that I've tied a knot three times in the same place on that string. That's how small a human life is. 
Now imagine viewing that string from, on a plane. Now imagine it from that string continuing past the space station, past the moon. Now imagine that string extending to the Andromeda galaxy 150 billion light years away. God is not bound to our time. He exists outside of it. Our whole universe is a bubble. God can literally replay and reset. He, he can play something out and rewind time and move the pieces around and go back again and do it over, and we would never know. That's how he can be omnipresent, every place at one time. He's not affected by that rule. It's also important to note that God delivered his judgments in the past, and he will again. He has not failed in his promises. But our perspective on those punishments is human. Israel thought that the 70-year exile in Babylon felt like forever. We think it takes a long time if we have to wait in line for an ATM machine for three minutes and our phone is dead and we don't have anything to distract us. So our vision of time is literally not part of God's equation. In verse 9 they say, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God isn't lazy. He's not inconsistent. To be just, he can't punish the innocent so that all who can be saved will be saved before the end is going to come. And that should remind the faithful of something. If we're still here, and we haven't been raptured, then there are still other souls out there that need to be saved in this world. We can rest when God gives us rest, or calls us home. Until then, the church is on the clock. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This verse right here should really resonate right now with the times we're living in and serve as a reminder. Take a look at the beginning of that. Like a thief in the night. There are a lot of people right now crying doom because they can see flux and pressure and heat and upheaval in the world. 20 years ago, people could see the end coming because 2,000 is a really nice round number for humans. But that's missing the point. Thieves don't kick doors and rattle all the windows when they're about to break in. They go in quick and quiet. Times are rough. Times are always rough. But even wars, like the Hundred Years' War, ended after 113 years in peace. Plagues like the Black Death took half the population of the world from Spain to China as its victim, and then it melted away like mist. Every drought everywhere has eventually been broken by rain. Every famine that ever was has always been followed by times of plenty. Pressures and heat and social friction are crucibles for purification. The most successful marriages are not the ones that had no problems. It's the one that people came through with struggles. 
They're unpleasant to live through. They can be costly on a lot of levels, but more so if we built on sand and not on stone. God doesn't promise us growth with no stress or difficulty. What he promises is that the metal at the end will be pure if we keep the faith while we're being refined. We are called to be diligent and to grow in times of strength and be examples in trying times. We're not called to be chicken littles crying at the sky's fall. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will eventually be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? To be that example in rough times, we have to unchain ourselves from this world. Because this world's fate isn't what we're bound to. We have Christ's sacrifice. We're bound to love eternal and a kingdom never ending. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Well, how do we hasten it? We spread the word as we're called to do. We fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus said, the harvest is ready. We overcome our own apathy and we keep our own fires stirred up. We lift up others in the church so that collectively, the church isn't just a candle in the darkness, we are a lighthouse whose light can cut through the world's storms when the hurricanes start to rage. Peter goes on to discuss our reward in verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's such a cool image. Imagine that for a second. New everything. Anyone who's ever traded in a really old car for a brand new model knows how nice that is. Everybody knows how much I enjoyed doing that last year. <laughs> but imagine that for a minute. A new body, a new earth, new heaven, and all perfect and in God's presence forever. That is a reward and an expectation that should help us overcome the cares in this world. And that is a hope to put faith in. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has been written to you. Also, also in all his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now just as a side, I love this commentary of one apostle talking about another. He confirms Paul's message and the message of all the brethren. But even apostles sometimes have to go back and reread something else that someone else has written. And even Peter probably shows that he and Peter would have appreciated if Paul had used a few more semicolons. <laughs> he also makes a good final warning. The best defense against spiritual corruption is spiritual health. Our health is the knowledge of the Word. If we know our faith, we can't be easily led astray. If you're debating with someone and they seem to have an upper hand, 
but something feels off, don't concede, go read. Review the word, check their context. Pray for the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. Ask other believers who you know have studied hard and are well-grounded. God's message hasn't changed. And if you don't know the answer to a question when somebody asks, admit it. And then go find it. Don't make up answers. That's false testimony of bad teachers, and it can do more harm than a humble acknowledgement that you're not all-knowing. Even Jesus said there were things that only the Father in Heaven knew that the Son hadn't been told. And if Jesus can admit that he doesn't have all the answers to all of God's timing questions, we can certainly do the same. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. So a final thought. As we grow our faith and we study, we're naturally going to get a growth in grace as well. We all start at the base of the same set of stairs, and that first thing that we have to come to know is Christ's love for us, and that God wants fellowship with us. For anyone watching who wants to know more about God's love and their purpose in your life, I invite you today to take a moment and open your hearts to Christ and ask Him to wash your sins away and let you start fresh, following on His new, narrower path. His path will unfold in ways that you could never have imagined before. And for those of you who are already saved, I would like to encourage you to reach out and encourage a brother or sister and lift them up in these times of strain. We all have to stay stirred up. It is up to all of us to make sure that all of us reach the finish line together and that we all stay steadfast. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's stand and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Your forgiveness and your love is overwhelming and abounding. You've given us not only the words, but you've shown through action, time and again, the depth of your love that you have for all of mankind. May we be worthy of carrying that love into the world, Lord. May you keep us steadfast. Thank you for giving us the tools of the Spirit and the knowledge of the word that we can use as our guides as we go out into the world, Lord. The world outside does not want us to succeed, Lord, but if you are with us, none can stand against us. That was promised, and you've shown over and over again that it is fulfilled. Lord, keep our hearts true to you. Keep us on fire. Keep us stirred up so that we are constantly the brightest light that we can be for you out in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. 
God bless.